So every summer we take a little pause from our normal preaching schedule and take a look at the psalm. So this morning brings us to Psalm 15, where we see the character and the lifestyle of the one who would dwell in the presence of God, the one who will be immovable, the psalm says. And as I was doing my preparation this week, I thought, what would it be like to be immovable? I don't mean physically, this is not an exercise course, but I mean in our thinking, in our living, in the way that you respond, the way that you are affected by the things that go on in the world around us. What would it be like to be immovable? There is so much movement in the world, isn't there? I mean, there's just always activity going on. There's always some little thing cropping up somewhere. People move to get a better job. They relocate. People move out of California to avoid the ridiculous things going on there. But not just physical movement. We see all kinds of movement. And I mean movement away from maybe what we are used to as being commonly held thoughts. Things like morality, things like biblical truth. There is an exodus away from those kinds of things. Now, I don't mean to say that all movement is wrong or sinful. We change our minds. We do different things. But oftentimes, movement is a result of discontentedness. A lack of satisfaction with where God has you where what he's called you to do just becomes somewhat boring to you and you want to chase the next thing. Not always the case. Okay, don't, don't hear me say that every kind of movement is bad. However, the Bible commends to us as Christians, if you belong to Christ, the Bible tells us about a kind of settled, rooted existence that is not blown all over the place by everything that pops up around us. Let me just give you a couple examples before we get into our psalm. Two years ago, or a year ago, when we started, we looked at Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 tells us about the man who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates on the law of the Lord, and therefore is rooted like a tree. Trees are permanent, for the most part, unless you have a chainsaw. But they don't say, oh, I'm going to go over to that yard. I'm going to go over by this place. They are rooted and established. That's the picture we get of the righteous man in Psalm 1, that he is stable. Fast forward to the New Testament. The book of Ephesians in chapter 4, Paul tells us that God gave to the church gifts in the form of, among other things, pastors and teachers. And the job of those pastors and teachers is to equip the church so that, this is verse 14, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So rather than being tossed about, rather by encountering everything that comes up in our life and going, hmm, that looks good, I think I'll do that. As Christians, we are to be rooted, established, or in the language of Psalm 15, immovable. This is what we should strive for as believers, and that's exactly what Psalm 15 is going to tell us about. Do you want to be the kind of person who's not easily moved, the kind of person who is grounded and established, who is at peace with where God has you? Then you need to know this. You need to know what this psalm says. So I invite you to open your Bibles. Right about in the middle of your Bible, you'll find the book of Psalms. 
And towards the beginning, we see chapter 15. Follow along as I read. Psalm chapter 15, a psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, everything around us is temporary, and there is so much movement and so much instability that at least somewhere in our hearts, we should cry out, I want stability. I want firm footing. And I praise you that you have given us your word that we can stand on, the rock, the foundation. So I pray that this morning, as we look at the characteristics of the one who dwells in your presence, you would remind us, you would teach us, you would encourage us, I pray that by your Spirit you open our understanding. Lord, if we read the Bible as any other book apart from the work of your Spirit, we won't see anything of value. So we ask that you would come and open our understanding so that we could see these things, see the truth, see the instruction, and live it out. That's often the hard part for us, Lord. We need your help, not just in understanding doctrine, or truth, but we need your help in living this out. Our world does not need a bunch of Christians who just go with the flow. It needs biblical, radical, obedient followers of Christ who are willing to stand on the truth and live this out. So God, please do this. Please come and equip us now in this time that we have together. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. My summary of this psalm, I've been giving kind of a thesis statement as we go through for each one. So my summary of Psalm 15 would be this. The one who would dwell in the presence of the Lord will walk according to the law of the Lord. The one who would dwell in the presence of the Lord will walk according to the law of the Lord. Now before we get into this, I want to tell you what Psalm 15 is and what it is not. This is really important as we start the beginning of this. Psalm 15 is a model of living that is to be done in response to the grace of God, not as a way to earn the grace of God. This, all of the things that we're going to read in verses 2 through 5 are not some kind of a ladder that you can climb by your own effort to obtain favor and grace from God. And I hope I've done this in the preaching ministry here at Grace, but I want you to know that when the Bible gives us instruction, when it gives commands, when it gives moral and ethical teaching for the way we live our lives, it is never for the sake of you earning position with God. Yes, obedience pleases God. It's what we're called to as believers. But if you turn it on its head and you start to say, okay, I can only be right with God if I do this and do this and don't do that. You know what that's called? Legalism, for one. 
There is a standard in the Scriptures for our behavior, but we must understand that we are not earning acceptance with God by what we do. Rather, the way that we live should be in response to the grace of God which has been freely extended to all who believe. This is not a new thing. This is not the first time we see this in the Bible. It has been this way since the beginning. The law of God which was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. So we have the Ten Commandments. We have the ceremonial law, all the dietary stuff, all of these kinds of things. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? Many people point to the law and say, okay, this is what we need to do in order to be right with God. This was the whole problem in the nation of Israel, that they had not understood rightly the purpose of the giving of the law, and they had turned it into some kind of performance-based thing to earn favor with God. But we need to remember that even the very giving of the law was preceded by God extending grace and freeing the people from Egypt through blood and sacrifice. Right? The blood on the doorpost that passes over the whole Passover celebration. So in response to this amazing, rescuing, redemptive work of God, God says to those people, okay, now because what I have done, You are to live this way in response to the grace. He does not say, this is what you have to do in order to be accepted by me. It is always response to God. And it is so important that we understand this. And the reason I bring this up right now at the beginning of Psalm 15 is because if we just read it through, it looks like it is saying, okay, who can be in God's presence? Easy, all you have to do is this, this, this. Don't do these things and you're good to go. That's the kind of man that God will accept. The problem is, what would we call that? Works. (laughs) We would call that earning righteousness before God by what we do. And that is not at all the theme of the scripture. That is not at all the theme of this psalm. So I want to show you what I learned this week that was so helpful in understanding what is it that David is communicating and where do we fit into this psalm. Not that our main point should be to inject ourselves into every text. That's not true. But we also want to be really careful that we don't read the Bible in such a way where it puts this crushing burden on our back that we have to perform. So this is what we need to figure out. So let's start with looking at verse 1, and I'll tell you what I learned. Verse 1, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now the words sojourn and dwell are very similar, but they do have distinct meanings, different definitions. The word sojourn means to stay temporarily. Okay, it's it's not a long-term permanent thing. Therefore, we read in the Old Testament, for example, that Abraham sojourned in the land that the Lord promised him. He didn't stay there. He moved around. He was always looking for something else. The book of Hebrews tells us he was looking for a different city, whose builder and maker was God, but it was temporary. It wasn't a permanent thing for him. He sojourned there. To dwell means to take up permanent residence. This is something more secure, more long-term. So we read in Psalm 91, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide or stay in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So we have like this temporary thing in the, in the sojourning and a more permanent thing. So what, is, what does David mean by including both of these words? I think what he's telling us is that no matter how long 
One is in the presence of God, whether it be for a second or a lifetime. There is a requirement to dwell in the presence of God. We cannot think. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of like going into a, a store that you maybe don't want to go into. You're like, I'm just going to be in there really quick. I'll just go really quick, get away out, and get, get, get out. That, that's not the case with God. Okay? And David's saying, whether it's temporary, whether it's permanent, one second in the presence of God requires perfect righteousness. Which means we're all in trouble. Because we don't have that. And as soon as I say that being in the presence of God requires something, we're back to the original problem. The fact that this looks like there's stuff that we have to do in order to earn it, in order to be in the presence of God. And here's what helped me unlock this this week. Turn back if you want, or you can just listen. Psalm 2, just a couple pages to the left probably. When we started, we said that Psalm 1 and 2 are the gateway to the entire book of the Psalms. They tell us the trajectory of the rest of the book. And it articulates the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. Okay, if you remember that. So all the rest of the Psalms, for the most part, can be interpreted through that lens. We can see, okay, this is where we started, this is where we're going, so on and so forth. So back in chapter 2, we read about these wicked men who have openly rejected God and have set themselves against the Lord and against His anointed. And the response of God to all this goings-on on earth is to sit in heaven and laugh because He knows the truth. He knows the actions of men are fairly inconsequential. And then it says that he terrifies them. How does God terrify these wicked men? With one sentence. Psalm chapter 2, verse 6. This is what the Lord says. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Same phrase as chapter 15. The hill of God's holiness, Mount Zion. Now we see that on that hill is one who dwells there who is none other than the king, the Lord's anointed. Immediate context, that's David. Messianic context, that's Jesus, who sits on the hill of the Lord. The one who dwells in the presence of God is the king. And so when we get to Psalm 15, we can see that all of these things that are being promoted, all this behavior, is not just here's how you clean up your act and come to God. It is the characteristic of the king, of the anointed one, the prototype of our faith. So now, when we look at this, we come to Psalm 15, we can see that the one who dwells on the hill of God must meet all of these requirements. And rather than sinking in despair because we know we cannot do it, we can rather have confidence because we have a king who did all these things and shares with us his righteousness. So now this isn't just, oh man, if I'm going to be with God, if I'm going to dwell in His presence, if I want to receive covenant blessings from Him, i got to do, 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 do. Rather, it is believe, accept, receive. This is not a ladder for you to climb, my friends. This is an unbelievably clear demonstration that our King, the one who is seated in Zion, has done everything necessary. And if you will but accept and receive the gift of salvation and you are united to him by faith, all of his obedience transfers over to you. This is such good news. Isn't this freeing? Isn't it great to know that you can read this and not just go, oh my word, 
I can't do all this stuff. What's my hope? Your hope is Christ. It's not your effort. It's not your work. I was going to save this for the end, but it's just too good. We have to know it right now so that we don't, as we work through here, start to say, this is just stuff i got to check off my list. Yes, we should model our lives after this. We should not slander. We should walk uprightly. We should do all of these things. But you have to understand, you can't impress God. Only Jesus Christ can obey this. And only Christ can give you His righteousness through faith. This is not just a list of ethical and moral behaviors. It's evidence that our King has done for us what we cannot do. And he has shared with us, as it were, the spoils of war. Isn't that great? That's <laughs> just like the best news. Now we can talk about verses 2 through 5 and have the right context without the burden of perfect obedience hanging on our back and dragging us down. We can simply focus on our role in responding to the grace of God who placed his king the Messiah, the Anointed One on Zion and gives us an example to live. So, let's move through and look at verses 2 through 5. In verses 2 and 3, we see a set of three things. Okay, One positive, one negative. Verse 2 is what this man does. Verse 3 is what they ought to stay away from. Okay, So look at verses 2 and 3. This is an answer to the question, who will dwell on the hill of the Lord? He who walks blamelessly, does what is right, and speaks the truth in his heart. Those are the three positive things. Okay, verse 3. Who does not slander with his tongue, nor takes up reproach against his friend, and does no evil to his neighbor. Those are the negative things that we are to stay away from, that this king stays away from. I know if you remember a few weeks ago that I had said that we need to see the Psalms in their connection to the rest of the Old Testament. Okay, these are not just isolated little kind of sayings and whatever. David, by giving this instruction, by commending this kind of behavior, is just rehearsing what the law of God has already taught the people of Israel. He's not making up anything new here. Okay, he is rehearsing this, but more than just a rehearsal, he is affirming to us the rest of the scriptures. The instruction and the commands of the law which God gave to his people, are not just for our good, but obedience to them shows that we love God. Remember Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Right? So as we look at this, don't see this only as some kind of isolated thing to Psalm 15. It is in connection to the entire rest of the Bible. And as we read verses 2 and 3, you should hear echoes of the law. You should hear echoes of the Ten Commandments. Do not lie, do not bear false witness, etc., etc. And my point is that this is not a new teaching. This is not original with David. He is building on and applying the Torah, which he had been taught from a child. But as with the rest of the law, when we read this, we get this sense of inadequacy, right? You should. I don't think anybody reads this and goes, oh, I can do that got that one down. Next. No one does that. We are meant to feel the weight. And this is where I think Peter is especially helpful. 
So we come to the New Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he gives us this description of what Jesus did. So I'm going to read this, but keep in mind some of the language of this psalm. The, the walking blamelessly, uh, the not slandering with your tongue, that kind of stuff. And listen as I read 1 Peter chapter 2. This is starting in verse 21. Peter says, this is what you've been called to. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Okay, pause right there. We already know now that Jesus is not just doing what he does for himself, but he is showing us what to do. Okay, he's our example. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he, revi- when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to one who judges justly. You get it? You get it? In his life, in his suffering, Jesus, our King, perfectly lived out the example of Psalm 15. He didn't bring a reproach against his neighbor. He didn't revile back. He didn't slander. He lived this out perfectly. That's our example. Therefore, I think I can confidently say that we can look at this text and because of our union to Christ, because of being united to him by faith, we have hope here. This is not a hopeless psalm. This is a hope-filled psalm because of Christ. So Jesus perfectly obeys and gives us his righteousness, his obedience at the moment of justification. Next, in verses 4 through 5, we see how this person relates to various kinds of people around him and how he thinks about stewarding the resources that have been given to him by God. So in answer to the question, who will dwell on the hill of the Lord, Psalm 15, verse 4 says, the one in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Now, one way for us to determine character of another person, how do we do that? How do you know if someone is trustworthy? How do you know if you should uh, partner with them? Maybe you have a business. Maybe you uh, are in the market where you need to partner with other contractors, other people. How do you know? What do you look for? Well, we often look at character. How does this person conduct themselves? What do they support? What do they condemn? What do they stand for? What do they oppose? That tells us a lot about what a person's character is, how they think and how they process things. Now, with the advent of the internet and social media especially, it has created a dumpster fire in regard to this. You know what a dumpster fire is? Look it up. You'll figure it out. It's bad. (laughs) And what I mean is that People have been given this license, in a way, to say whatever they want, whenever they want, about whatever they want, all from the comfort of your living room. You don't even have to leave home to be a jerk anymore. You can just sit at home and be a jerk to everybody around you. What a mess. But what that has done is it has given us a window into the thinking and the character of certain people. All of a sudden, you don't have to wonder, what's that person about? You can just look and see, oh, they promoted that, they condemned that, they stood for this, so on and so forth. So one of the ways that we determine character is by watching a person. What do they stand for? What are they doing? Okay? Now, maybe you've heard the phrase, uh, 
We need to love what God loves, hate what God hates. I think that's true, but it needs to be qualified. Okay? What we need to remember is that the Bible tells us what God loves. The Bible tells us what God hates. We do not have the authority or the permission to go outside of the scriptures and tell God what he ought to hate because we don't like it. The scriptures have to be the final authority in this regard. And we need to remember, we are not God. God can perfectly hate something. We can't. We're sinful. So we need to be really careful. When we come to this now, when David says in verse 4 that the one who dwells with God will despise a vile person, what do you think he means? He doesn't just say, you're not going to like what the person does. He says, you will despise the very person. What's he getting at? What's he telling us? Well, we need to keep it in context. So remember the last six psalms, Starting in Psalm 9, David has been meditating and, and churning over this idea of the wicked and the righteous. And he has articulated that the wicked are those who know the law of God, know the requirement of God, and openly and willingly reject it. That's his classification of the wicked, as we've seen in the last several Psalms. So this is not some kind of cruel, heartless, cold, like, oh, if you don't like someone, just despise them. Bible says that's okay, right? Nope, that's not what's going on. These people are those who are unrepentantly wicked while knowing what they're doing. Okay? So this isn't just you get to decide who you don't like and then blame it on Psalm 15 and say, oh, I can despise you. There's a category for this. And it is those who live in open, willful rejection of the law of God in a righteous response to that kind of open wickedness is what David says in verse 4. In whose eyes a vile person is despised. Now it's not hard to look around and see the vile outworkings of sin around us, is it? <laughs> we don't have to leave the room. Just look at yourself. But it's really easy to look around us and to see just this obvious and open hatred of God and His law and His standard and His commandments. I'll just pick an easy one for example. I think it, the exploitation of women in our culture, that's sin through things like trafficking, so-called entertainment, fashion, gender ideology, abortion, that is objectification, and it is wrong. It is a sinful outworking of the wickedness of people. And what Psalm 15 tells us is that these ideas are not just formed in the abstract. They don't come from somewhere. They come from wicked hearts of people who openly reject the law of God. And we need to see them as such. Now, this is not a sermon to teach you how to despise people. That is not what's going on in this text. This is not, I am not going to stand up here and tell you, here's what you should do to treat someone else worse. That's anti-gospel. But we need to recognize what it means to 
draw the line somewhere. I, gotta be, I mean, we've got to be careful how we talk about this, but the Bible is really clear. And I'm not going to stand up here and tell you, you need to do this, this, and this. You need to study the Scriptures. You need to follow the conscience that God gave you, hold it up to the light of the Word, and make decisions about what does this mean. Imperfectly, we know we can't do it, but what does it mean for us to do this? In the light of the recent decision of the Supreme Court, there's a growing number of companies who are saying, we will pay for all travel expenses if you need to go out of state to have an abortion. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not going to support those companies. It's a personal thing for me. I'm not telling you to do that. That's why I'm not listing out who they are. But there's got to be a line somewhere. At what point is it agreement? At what point is it beyond just tolerance and acceptance? It's not all just negative stuff here. There is a standard. There is a line. The scripture gives us that line that ought not to be crossed. But each one of us needs to study the word of God and what God has put in your heart, hold it up against the scriptures and act on it. We need wisdom and grace. Isn't it just a mess around us? My word. If nothing else, this should make us long for the return of our king and the establishment of his kingdom. Will there be none of this stuff? Hmm. Well, the call is not only for negative rejection here in this psalm, but also for positive affirmation. Look at the second half of verse 4. Those who fear the Lord who subject themselves to his word and his will are worthy of honor. These are the ones we should encourage and stand with and promote and partner with. I believe that we should honor the people that honor the Lord. It should not be unusual for you to walk through the church and hear conversations about people saying, man, I was just encouraged by so-and-so and how they stood up for the truth. Or have you heard, did you see what they did? That's good. Like, it's good. It's okay to honor those who honor the Lord, to honor those who fear the Lord. If we fear God more than we fear men or the repercussions of what men do, that's an honorable thing according to the scriptures. And we ought to encourage and affirm that kind of behavior. This is not just condemning the bad, it is promoting the good. Right? If we just go around, everything's bad, 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 bad. Ick, get out of here. Do what's right. Honor those who honor God. Promote those who honor God. Those who fear God and live according to His standard. It's biblical, and it's good. Now we also see in Psalm 15 that this kind of person is true to his word. The one who dwells in the presence of God is true to his word. Look at the end of verse 4. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now this is not an endorsement for taking oaths or for using a potty mouth. This, the idea here is that if you say you're going to do something, you do it. Period. It's about commitment. It's about being a man of your word or a woman of your word. Aren't you glad Jesus did this? Aren't you glad that he didn't promise something and then say, ooh, that's going to be hard. I think I'm going to back off that. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. 
And the call for his followers, his people, those who call him king, is to honor what you have said. If you make a promise, this is not just spiritual. I'm talking your reputation as a believer in the world. If you make an agreement and the circumstance changes so that if you follow through, you're going to be put in a bad place, you do it anyway because you gave your word. And that means something for the person who dwells in the presence of God. I mean, this is, in some ways, this is very simple, but it is very hard, isn't it? It's hard to keep your word. But as Christians, we ought to be people of integrity who do what we say we are going to do. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything other than that comes from evil. It's pretty clear instruction. So the one who dwells with God will be a man of his word. Now lastly, another characteristic of the one who dwells with the Lord is that he faithfully stewards the financial resources that God has given to him. Look at verse 5. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. This has to do with financial dealings and gain. We should see this again, not just as an isolated instruction from David, or like the first time this has shown up on the scene, but it reinforces what has already been laid out in the law of God. David knows the law for as much as he talks about it, we know that, and because of his upbringing. Okay, the law of Moses repeatedly warns against lending money out at interest. Okay, lending money at interest means someone's in trouble. You say, oh, I'll help you out, but you're going to pay me back more than I gave you. Okay, that's what... I think we all know what interest is, probably. It's not wrong to give gifts. I don't even think it's wrong to loan money and say, pay me back when you can. But the point here is that we ought not to profit from somebody else's misfortune. Someone else is in a spot where they need help. That happens. We should help. We should be generous as the people of God. But we ought not to take advantage of people who are in that spot. I mean, you can read about this Exodus 22, Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 23, all have very strong language about benefiting from somebody else's misfortune through lending money at interest. This is all wrapped up in the character of the one who dwells in the presence of God. He understands the law of God. He obeys the law of God. Similarly, the law of Moses forbids taking bribes to pervert justice. Well, that never happens anymore, right? <laughs> Ooh, if that were only the case. If we are seeing this one on the holy hill as the king, as the Lord's anointed who does all of these things perfectly, then this has great significance. To have a king who is able to be bought, to have a ruler of a people who will take a bribe to benefit himself or his, his companions is an embarrassment to a nation. It's an embarrassment to a people. But that's not the way our king is. Our king is different. He is committed to justice. He is committed to right doing. And therefore, his people ought to be committed to justice, committed to upholding your word, committed to not taking advantage of those around you because our king doesn't do that. Therefore, we ought not to do that. Hebrews 1.9, in speaking about Jesus, 
quotes back to the book of Isaiah and says this, You, talking about Christ, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness far beyond your companions. Our king loves justice. He will not be bought. He will not be motivated poorly. And neither should we. As we serve our king, as we strive to be the kind of people who give testimony to the goodness of God by the way we live our life, do not allow yourself to be bought. It's unjust. The Bible condemns it. The Psalms condemn it. And the promise of this psalm, this is the very last part, is that all who live this way, who, who honor God by their living, by their conduct, by their reputation, their attitudes, will never be moved. That's how we started, remember? And just thinking about the, the glory of being immovable. Now what if at this point I said to you, okay, you want to be firm, you want to be moved? Easy, just do this, 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 and this. Where does that put us? Helpless and hopeless. But there's hope in the gospel. The word gospel means good news, and it is good news <laughs> because it tells us the truth. The gospel gives us hope. And even though you and I know that we stand no chance of perfectly obeying this command in this psalm, there is one who has. There is one who has obeyed this psalm to the letter. We have a king who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have a king who has been established on the throne of David and Mount Zion. And we have a king who loved his people even unto death so that he could give to us the very righteousness that he earned by his obedience, cover us with it. And now we can read Psalm 15 and say, yes, Christ has done this for me. I don't have to do it in a duty sense to earn God's favor. It's so good. This is so good. You remember what I said before about our definition or my, my summary of this chapter? I'm going to tweak it just a little bit. So I said, the one who would dwell in the presence of God will walk according to the law of God. Remember that? That was my summary. I'm going to say it this way as we close. The one who dwells now in the presence of God has walked according to the law of God, and his name is Jesus. And I tell you what, if you don't know him, if you are trying in your own strength to fulfill, to work for, to earn, earn, earn with God, you can be freed of that burden right now by coming to the cross. The book of Romans tells us in chapter 8 that God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do in sending his only son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You want to obey the Word of God? Trust in Jesus. You want to fulfill what God has commanded? Trust in Jesus. It's the only way to be free from the weight of performance.
and it is the best news you will ever hear in your life. So before we come to the table, I just want to say again, we are a hopeless and helpless people apart from the grace of God. And when we celebrate the table, we do this every week at our church, it is a remembrance of our helplessness and of Christ's sufficiency. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have set things up in a way that we are unable. And I know that sounds so strange in a sense, but without our inability, we would have no need. We would, we would feel no desire for something better, for something more. And God, I thank you that you have given us requirements in your word. There are standards in the Bible. And yet, because of our sin, because of our failings, because of our depravity, Lord, we cannot perfectly keep your law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. I pray that every heart in the hearing of my voice would trust in Jesus. Father, come and do the work by your Spirit. Convict of sin. Encourage righteousness. Bring repentance and faith so that we can read your word with joy and hope knowing that Jesus Christ, the King who is seated on Zion, has done what we could never do. I pray that we would trust him, that we would trust you. And even now as we come to the table, Father, remind us of your grace. Give us the strength to live in response to that grace. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.